0: It's great to be here with you and to join with you and um, some of you may be aware we've been away so it's good to be back as well. And I wanted to start off this morning by sharing um, my good fortune on my holiday with you a little, by a little imaginary exercise um, to take you on a little bit of a journey here. Um, You can close your eyes if that helps you, but I do warn you, you need to open them again at some point so I know that you're still awake, Um, No, it's early this morning. So I want you to just imagine, imagine you're away on a holiday overseas enjoying a lovely, relaxing time. You've had a, had a great day, comes the end of the day, and you lie down to go to sleep. You're getting into that nice, relaxed state, drifting off into sleep, you know that point where you just go, You you're suddenly you're not conscious anymore of what's going on around you. So you're into that, that deeper sleep, and all of a sudden you're awake again. And it's like, oh, gosh, I was enjoying just being asleep. What's woken me up sort of thing? And even as all this stuff starts going on, you're aware of this buzzing coming from your bedside table. And you're going, that's my phone ringing. Who's ringing me at this time of night? Who even can ring me when I'm overseas? And why are they ringing me at this time of night? And all of that's happening as you turn to grab the phone and look at it. And you see your daughter's name come up on it. You go, okay, that's not good. Your kids don't ring you in the middle of the night when you're away overseas to tell you good news or just to have a chat. And then, as even as you're going through all this, doing your calculations, it's 3 o'clock in the morning at home. This is not good. And so, as you answer the phone and start talking, you start asking, uh, in your mind, you're just working out, OK, is she crying? Is she, you know, how upset is she? Has she just locked herself out, or the dogs run off? or? something like that, she's got a flat tire, um, and so on. And as she starts talking, um, you hear something about um, a message left on the phone and, and something about Advent care, and going, that, that should mean something to me. What's that mean? And then finally she lands on it. Um, they've taken Nana to hospital. Now, for me, well, I, I wonder for you, if you're in that situation, where have you got to at this point? Are you already, you know, your heart's racing? Are you already out of bed getting dressed? Have you motioned to your spouse to start Googling to find what flights you can get home? How quickly? And um, is your voice getting up into that fever pitch to wake up the whole household? For me, fortunately, I had a few tells in that conversation that I worked out that it wasn't something I needed to do anything immediately, that I could actually go back to sleep, and that it was just more a courtesy call than an immediate problem. So I was fortunate in that, and to know that my mother was in a good place, she was getting adequate care, and it wasn't anything that was life-threatening at that time. But I think we all experience times in our lives where things come in that disrupt our peace. And I wonder for you, what is it that disrupts your peace? And how easily is your peace disrupted? You know, how fragile is your peace? Can you go from no peace to sorry, from complete peace to absolutely no peace in that, that click of a finger? You know, is it something simple like the next door neighbor starting up the mower at seven o'clock on a Saturday that really loses your peace or someone cutting into you in traffic? Is, is, it, is your peace easily destroyed? Is it very fragile or do you keep your peace? I'm sure we all know people who are never truly at peace. They always have that anxious restlessness about them and they're not particularly restful people to be around. And the truth is, you know, even talking about this, we all do want peace, don't we? Worldwide, we can talk about cross cultures. We all want peace. We don't want to have strife and problems in our lives. You know, We had the Nobel Peace Prize. Um, We want to live in a space of peace and safety, but we've gotta ask what is that peace and safety based on? Because if it is so fragile and it's easily disrupted, is our peace based in truth or is it based in lies? What basis do we use for measuring whether we can be at peace? This year God's been talking to me about rest. Which is kind of you can see the connection between rest and peace, and he's been talking to me about it not in the terms of an absence of activity of of not doing stuff, but in an absence of restlessness, an absence of anxiety and cares. And one particular aha moment for me in the midst of all of this um, was that I realised that rest and trust in God are very closely linked, and basically what. Um, I felt him showing me was that the places where I lack rest in my life, where I'm worried, anxious, concerned, um, chewing it over all the time, getting annoyed about it, whatever, are the places where I'm not trusting God to have my best in his hand in that that situation or those areas in my life. And so that's a question that I've got, I got to ask. Do I believe that about God? And, and I can say, you know, we all could say here this morning, yes, we believe God's cru- trustworthy, of course we do. Does it, can everyone say amen to that? <laughs> and yet, for many of us, there are places in our lives where we go, oh, yes, I'll, I'll, give, I'll give lip service to that, but the way I live my life... Um, The way my actions and my emotional responses to the circumstances that come around me, um, the way I respond in those times actually show up that I'm not really trusting God. I don't really believe he's trustworthy because otherwise I wouldn't be worrying. I wouldn't be getting stressed out about things. And so I want to sort of unpack a little bit this morning. What does that trust in God look like and what are those truths that we can really hold on to? Because it's, you know, we all know, we live in uncertain times. Um, Even in my old generation, (laughs) I'm getting over that hill a little bit further, um, I was brought up in a generation that was taught very much about the idea that truth is not absolute, that truth goes beyond theory and belief to what you experience. Um, There's a natural outworking to, I come from a scientific background, you know, when we develop scientific theory, Um, our experience and observations give weight to a theory. Without experience and observations, a theory could be right or wrong, we don't know. But the end of that, if we keep playing that out to the the nth degree, what that means, and that's the society we live in, in this postmodern society, is a society that says, well, my truth is my experience. What I experience tells me what the truth is in the world. What your experience is tells you what the truth is for you. They can be two different things, completely different and contrasting. One of the problems is, of course, with that is that I don't agree with your version of truth, so I'm going to slam you down, but that's a whole other, other story. And obviously we can see that play out very well in social media and even mainstream media now in the way that um, Christian faith is often attacked we can't just say that God's word is the truth, and that's it. I remember years ago um, a um, bumper sticker kind of slogan that went around, and I didn't like it then, and I think it's even worse now. It has smacks of a bit of arrogance. But it said, um, the Bible says it, I believe it, and that settles it. Anyone else remember that one? <laughs> yeah. You're not going anywhere with that these days, because a lot of people go, well, good on you. I don't believe in the Bible. So what's that? Um, and the problem is, too, that we have not only had things like that that have really put people off, but what we read in the Bible has to be interpreted. And my, my interpretation is might be different to somebody else's. And there's a struggle in that. And we can twist and use that to our own purposes. And, you know, one of the things I remember even as a, um, a teenager and back at high school, I probably was a bit outspoken and... and I won't say I deserve stuff, but I went through a period of feeling very ostracised and even poked fun of and, and mocked at high school because of my faith. And um, the way I dealt with that at a particular time was I was looking through my Bible for support and comfort in in that, and I came across the verses in Romans 12, Romans 12, where um, Paul is talking, and at the end of the chapter, and he's talking about vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Leave the, leave the revenge from for your enemies to God, and so um, is expanding on what Jesus said about um, that. Do not repay evil for evil, but repay evil with love, and to so love your enemies. And this passage talks about um, giving your enemy a cup of water or or food to eat, and in that way, you will heap burning coals on their head. That was a bit I liked. There's the vengeance, yes! So that was my comfort and my support in that space was, well, you're going to be mean to me. I'm not going to be mean back to you, but you'll get yours one day, and we'll see who's on the right side of the fence. Very loving and Christian kind of response, isn't it? Not. (laughs) And, And I think sometimes maybe some of you in here go, well, it says it in the Bible. It's okay. But the context that I took that out of was, I forgot about the bit of showing the love and the care and the compassion. And um, I don't know where it is, but there's a saying about that, about showing love to your enemies. You'll lose your enemies because they become your friends. But it's about our integrity in that space as well. Do we practice what we preach in that? And so where I'm at with this is, is that the Bible can be skewed, and we know that... Plenty of non-Christian people pull out bits out of the Bible to say this is what it's all about, this is what Christian faith is about. Look at the Old Testament. God went around slaying everybody, so that's what God's like without reading the whole story and understanding the whole context. So when we come to our own peace and safety and feeling okay in the world that we're in, where do we go? I've got two readings this morning. Um, One was from the Old Testament and one was from the New Testament. Now, some of you may have read those and going, oh, where's she going to go with these? Because they can come across as very confrontational and even a bit condemning, and that's not what I'm here about today, but it's just to unpack what these said. The first reading is from the Old Testament, and it's in a period of time the people of Israel had come out of slavery of Egypt. They'd been given their promised land, their own land, but in the midst of that, they'd gone, well, God, you're not really enough. What you're doing and your rules and your our way of relating to you is not really enough or it makes us uncomfortable. We want what the world has. We want what everyone else is doing around us. And so they started connecting with all these other gods and the practices of the people around them. And in that space, it came to a point where God said, well, if you want that so much, you can have it. And so the Babylonians came in, overtook Israel. They overtook um, Jerusalem sacked the city, completely destroyed it and carried off most of the inhabitants into exile. And so these people are in exile in Babylon and they're crying out to God, oh, what do we do? How do we fix this? You know, come and save us. And they wanted a prophet because back in those days they didn't have the Holy Spirit and so it wasn't accessible in the same way for most people to hear from God as it is today. And so they wanted a prophet to come. The prophet was a person who had that really great connection with God, could hear from him well and would give a message to the people. Now how many of us know we don't need somebody to come and give us a message if we're going all good and we're in the right direction? You really only need a prophet to come and tell you when you're going the wrong direction. Hey, there's a cliff over there. If you keep going, you're going to fall off. But of course, Ezekiel came and they didn't really like him much because, as I said, he said things that made them uncomfortable and they didn't really like them and they didn't want to do them. And plus, he did a whole lot of really weird stuff. He was a weird guy. And um, if you want to know more about that, read the book of Ezekiel. There's some very interesting prophetic acts that he did to show the people. But in Ezekiel chapter 13, he starts attacking the people that they'd brought around them, the prophets that they wanted to listen to that told them the things they liked to hear. And so he's having a go at these these prophets, and he says, "Um, Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. Because of your false words, so this is Ezekiel 13... um, Because of your false words and lying visions, I am against you, declares the Sovereign Lord. My hand will be against the prophets who see false visions and utter lying divinations. They will not belong to the council of my people or be listed in the records of Israel, nor will they enter the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Sovereign Lord. Because they lead my people astray, saying, Peace, when there is no peace. And because when a flimsy wall is built, they cover it with whitewash. Therefore, tell those who cover it with whitewash that it's going to fall. Rain will come in torrents, I'll send hailstones hurtling down, and violent winds will burst forth. When the wall collapses, will not people ask you, where is the whitewash you covered it with? I think that last statement is quite sarcastic. If your house falls down, people don't go, where's your paintwork gone? What you paint it with is not what holds it together. And so the issue here was that um, the structure underneath was not great. Now, to understand perhaps what he's talking about with walls here, we need to understand the importance of walls to the people of Israel. For us today, we have walls that hold the roof up and, and keep the elements out. But in the time of Israel, walls were around your compound where you lived or around your city, your town. The bigger the the town or city, the bigger the walls were. They had gates in them. They had watchmen who stood on the walls to watch. The walls were there to start with to protect them from wild animals, protect their livestock, protect the people from being killed. But the walls were also there to keep out marauders and, um, and... um, bandits and, and other countries, other peoples who want to come in and destroy you or take all your stuff or take all your women and children or, or whatever they want to do. And so walls were very important about keeping safety for these people, about their safety. But I don't think that Ezekiel was talking about walls because their walls had already been destroyed. He was talking about what they used to keep them safe and make them feel comfortable and okay. And so what what he was attacking here, I believe, is, is the beliefs that the people were holding. They were looking to things that were not true to keep them safe. They were looking to beliefs, so maybe it was superstitions, maybe it was their practices um, of sacrificing to other gods other than God to um, make them their life work the way they wanted it to work but also I think just their picture of how life worked because that was not the truth. They were, um, they were looking to the world of how to live and how to um, think and behave rather than looking to God and those two things are quite um, different and contrary. And it reminds me a little bit... Um, when we look at those things that we think are keeping us safe and keeping us comfortable are actually not doing that. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul says that a time will come when people won't put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to to myths. It kind of sounds pretty much like what we're going through in our society and culture now. A lot of us feel that tension in our world. And it's really hard. How do we stand against that for ourselves and how do we actually speak into that as well? How do we know what is a myth and what is truth? Now, it's not my purpose today to pull them all out and go, well, this is truth and that's not and give it any definitions of why but for me my biggest thing that I I like to look at because even in our churches we have a whole lot of different beliefs that's why we have denominations that's why we have different church groups because some of us believe one thing and some of us believe something else but for me my port of call with this is, is has been for some time is to ask the question is that belief is that part of our theology, helping us to have a better relationship with God? Is it pointing to God? Is it exalting God? Is it exalting the kingdom of heaven? Or is it pointing to self, self self self-satisfaction, self-comfort, just about our own needs and wants and and that sort of thing? And so that's my way of just having a, a look at that and making that decision. In our second reading, it's a very similar theme about peace and safety when there is none. So we'll have a look at that one. Um, It's 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 1 to 6. And we have here, um, so the reading is, now brothers and sisters, about the times and dates, we do not need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet." Verses like this used to kind of scare me when I was younger because I kind of going that whole, I don't know, some of you probably grew up with thief in the night. I used to have nightmares about Jesus coming back and getting left behind and all of those sorts of things. I had a lack of confidence in my salvation. But the day of the Lord is an interesting term because although many people like to have It all nutted down into a little box of this is exactly what it looks like. It's a term that's used throughout the Old Testament and in the New Testament as well. And in the Old Testament, when it's referred to a lot of um, prophecies in the Old Testament, many of those have come and they have been a day of the Lord. The day of the Lord represented a time where God would bring judgment and condemnation on people who were doing those things that were not of him. It was like when he came in and did a hard reset and go, no, let's, let's scrub it all out and start again. Um, the time of Noah and the flood was a day of the Lord when things were reset. Jesus coming, his death, his resurrection was another hard reset. We've got a whole new way of living um, out of that. I do think that there will be an ultimate day when we won't revert back into um, godless practices. When that will be, well, when's that thief coming to your house? We don't know, do we? However, we have to live in the midst of that. Um, One of the passages where Jesus talks about the day of the Lord is in Matthew 24, and he talks about it. um, You know, yes, there'll be wars, there'll be famines, there'll be rumours of wars, there'll be earthquakes, We all know that, don't we? We all know that that stuff's going on in our world. You don't have to watch much of the news to see all that stuff. My favourite part of this, though, is he says, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Don't lose your peace over it. But how? How? When all our senses go into this place of go into protection mode, self-preservation kicks in and we go, this is all too hard, I just want to close my walls and we can be that in church. We can go, this is our safe place. We'll just cut out everybody else who isn't like us and we'll keep in this place of safety. Paul gives us some pointers in this chapter about how we're to live. He says we're to live as a people with really different thinking because just as a people who are in darkness, you are people in light. How how many of us know that darkness and light can't coexist? As soon as you put some light into a dark room, you can see pretty much the whole room. <clears throat> Doesn't matter how small that is. And darkness, well, Darkness generally struggles more to snuff out the light. We have to let it go. But he says we have that that kind of thinking. It's not the same thinking as the rest of the world. We have to have different thinking. And he says rather than having our defensiveness, carrying offence, because we can get like that, um, it's very easy to get up in arms with some of the stuff that is flung at Christians and that. our way of thinking, we can get very offended by that and that can lead to either fear or hatred or a mixture of the both or we can live in in this place of despair, you know. But um, Paul tells us to put on faith and love as a breastplate, so that's to protect our heart and salvation to protect our minds. So our safety is not based on that living defensively behind the closed doors and the whitewashed walls of our own righteousness, but we're to live prepared for battle with protective gear of faith. We're not standing there, of faith, love and hope, but not standing there wringing our hands in despair and saying, I hope Jesus comes back soon so I don't have to live in any discomfort. How, what does this look for us practically? And as I've touched on, you know, we we put up walls of protection that are based in fear to keep out those who are different, different beliefs. We use our truth to set us up in an us and them scenario. And I think sometimes do we actually need to reassess some of what we do as church that is about keeping us safe, rather than about doing what we're called to do. I was confronted a number of years ago, I'd been at a meeting in church and it was out on a bit of a rural road and as I came out the driveway I saw this guy walking up the road with a jerry can and there was a car further up and obviously he was walking back to his car with with petrol. I drove past him and as I did it was like, you should pick him up, oh no, he's nearly there now. It was a really hot day. He's nearly there now. It's a bloke, I shouldn't really pick him up. you know. I'm busy, all these excuses. And then I was convicted because I'd been doing a whole lot of study about how um, our faith is about being and bringing the kingdom of heaven here on earth today, doing acts of love, compassion, mercy, graciousness. And so I ended up doing a U.E. and picking him up. He was really grateful because his comment was, well, I've walked about five k's to and from petrol station, and nobody, people have driven past me. Nobody's picked me up, even though I only probably less than half a k. It made a difference to him. I'm not saying that to be anything good, but what happened out of that was I was challenged in that space, because I thought, how often is it that as Christians we can get so um, busy and rushing around with our programs, with our um, conferences, even our, our church services, our meetings, whatever we do, and we suddenly find that we don't actually have time for the widows and orphans in our world around us. We don't have time to care about those people who are most vulnerable in our society. And I guess the question, I'm not having a go at Kill South because I know we do a lot of stuff, I'm not, I, but it's just, this is the question that is in my mind that I reassess in myself in what I do because this is what I believe Jesus called us to be, people who give our love and our time until it hurts, until it's sacrificial. Do we, are we busy making ourselves comfortable or are we prepared to be uncomfortable and step out into a place that doesn't feel quite so safe? As I said, in the uncertainty of the times we live in, when we look at at what what we're to do, um, I sort of think a good place to start is to look at what Jesus is doing. And one of the things that's kind of struck me more recently is that um, in his relationship with his people, God... Um, is uh, often describes that relationship even in the Old Testament, but even more so in the New testament um, as the relationship of a gr- groom and his bride and in the Old Testament, there was a whole lot of things that were done for, to the bride to prepare her for the groom, including washing and and a whole lot of um, ritual things that they did and it's really interesting, I'd love to do a bit more of a study, I read a bit about it, but uh, to do a bit more of a study on that sort of the significance of all those things that were done and how they relate to us as the bride, the church, as the bride of Christ. But in Ephesians um, 5, this is brought out quite clearly where it says, um, he's comparing it to husbands, and he says, "'Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church "'and gave himself up for her to make her holy, "'cleansing her by the washing with water through the word "'and to present her to himself as a radiant church "'without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, "'but holy and blameless.'" So when we've got these parallels of how the bride was prepared for the groom in Israel, I wonder how open we are as individuals and as a church to being being prepared. Because what that told me was, okay, it's okay that the church is not perfect. Because I'm sure some of you get that feeling sometimes where you go... Sometimes the church, where you know, when you watch the news and such like that, you know, the church is so broken, so damaged, it's so doing so many wrong things, and all the rest of it. We're being prepared, okay? And so, Jesus is not going to come back until we are prepared. But how much are we prepared as individuals, and as even this congregation here in Kilsai South, how much are we prepared to make ourselves vulnerable and open? to be able to be brought to that place of becoming more and more um, without that stain, the wrinkle, the blemish, but holy and blameless? How much do we want to submit to that? And I think even just touching on um, what we're discussing this morning about waiting this uncertain period for us waiting for our new pastor. Do we hold on really tight to the things that made us comfortable and kept us feeling safe? You know, we don't want just anyone, because this new guy, maybe he'll want us to do weird things that we're not comfortable with, or he might even be a hipster, or even worse, a vegan. <laughs> but are we willing, as a, as a corporate group, as individuals, to submit to what Jesus might want to do in and through us, to bring change at deeper levels, to make us more Christ-like, to make us more like that bride that he is longing to bring home. Because I look at it and I, when I read the New Testament and I read about Jesus, he didn't come to maintain the status quo and keep things the same. And he didn't even come to take things back to the good old days. When Jesus came, he tipped everything upside down. He was a complete radical and he confused a lot of people. He wasn't who they thought he was going to be. And if he's still the same yesterday, today and tomorrow, then he's probably still in the business of tipping us upside down and making us think differently. And I think I particularly look at it and go, Jesus really offended the, um, and affronted the people who thought they had it all together, the religious people, and that they thought they had all the answers. Jesus' way was counterintuitive to the way of the world, totally different, like the light from the dark. And he had a way of making people feel uncomfortable and unsafe, like when they, came, they thought he'd come to free them from the tyranny of Rome. And yet he let Rome crucify him and kill him. And he allowed himself to die. But he then confused them even more by overcoming the ultimate enemy, who is death. Jesus doesn't do things by halves. He doesn't do things dealing with just the symptoms that are on the top. He likes to go to the root cause of what is going on, which is usually our way of thinking. And so his parables, though they made them, he he made people feel uncomfortable and unsafe with where they were at. He showed up the hypocrisy of behavior that didn't match up to what were the said beliefs. One of the things he accused um, the Pharisees of doing was straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. He said they were focused on the wrong things. He, they were focused on the little things, like the colour of the carpet, or the, um, how we baptise people, or how we do communion. And he said, but you're missing out the big picture, which is probably love, isn't it? Love for God, love for each other. And I wonder if, in a, at a global level again, that he might say the same sorts of things about his body now when we make tiny points of doctrine enough to bring about division and disunity in his people. One of the things that is really exciting me at the moment in our region, our area locally, is the way that the church, the body of Christ is starting to come together and work together across those denominational and church divides. I was at an event last night where some 15 to 20 churches were represented working together to bring the gospel to people who are unreached. There's other areas, a number of other areas where I'm seeing this coming together. And it's amazing what God is doing. There's a shift. And I think that's what excites God is when he sees his people forgetting about the differences and focusing on what is the same, our core beliefs, our our core understandings that are the same and um, working together with that. In amongst all of this, coming back to where we started with the peace and safety and living in uncertain times, there's a point for us all though where the rubber hits the road, where we need something that's more than a theory and more than theology. We all know that there are times where just words don't cut it for us. Just saying this is what we believe doesn't cut it. There are points in our lives where our peace is disrupted, where we're in pain, where that's not enough. So how do we find the difference between those flimsy whitewashed walls of belief that are not the real deal and the real deal? What, when when will you know? Well, I would like to suggest today that when you experience it, you do know. There's something shifts deep down inside you. For me personally, one of my heart's desires as a young adult was to really understand and know the love of God, to move before, past just a set of theological beliefs that are wrapped up in a creed or or in verses out of the Bible. I wasn't sure exactly what that looked like because I hadn't experienced it. But as I read about the early disciples in the book of Acts, this deep hunger grew in me because I, I looked at what was going on in the book of Acts and I looked at what I was experiencing in a variety of church settings and I was going, they're not even on the same planet. We've shifted a long way. And I had a hunger. Can't it be that simple? Can't it be that simple? And so as I kind of walked in this journey and was, I looked around, I suppose it wasn't just me, but I had a lot of friends as well who were struggling with that same doubt and uncertainty. And so... Well, you know, again, that whole thing of living in postmodern times—we've been taught that there's nothing that's absolute truth, and you find your truth through experience. We can walk through this minefield of indecision because what if I make a mistake and it's fatal? But I also know that on the other side of that is that what we experience does impact us. Our experience changes us um, at a deeper level. Um, some of our experiences have, have changed us for the negative. We live in fear because we've been hurt and disappointed before. We, can't, we struggle to trust in God because he's disappointed us and let us down in some way in our eyes, in our understanding. But for me, I wanted, I wanted more of this and, and more of a real relationship with God, more certainty about all that. And I'd had some times in my life where I knew without a doubt that God had spoken to me. I remember one time um, in my early 20s sitting there and I was going through a change in a circumstance and, and just this thought just dropped into my head because I was letting go of a particular ministry I was involved in. And um, the thought that popped into my head was, there's nothing you can do that's going to make me love you more. And then I was like, oh, wow, that is freedom. I don't have to work for his love. And then the flip side of that I suddenly realised was, there's nothing you you can do to make me love you less. And I was like, wow. I was literally jumping around the room because that truth, it pervaded through all my defences, it pervaded through my, my mind experience of the world to a reality that was deep inside of me, that... Nothing could shift because God had placed that in me. But that was far, few and far between. In my late 20s, however, I had an experience that took me to a whole deeper level with God. And it took me from knowing lots of stuff about God to um, knowing stuff in my heart about God. It's a thing... Um, In in a lot of ways, it really defies explanation. I can't tell you how to do it. I can't tell you what happened. It just shifted things in my way of living, my way of thinking. It shifted my faith, and this is the best way I can explain it, is it shifted my faith from my head to my heart. And it's not about being emotional or anything. It was just knowing things in your core being that, before I'd just know and about. It's that place for me where that perfect peace resides. It's that place where I can always go to and find safety in the presence of God, in his safety doesn't matter about the circumstances around you in that place because you're sitting in that space of God's love and his protection and the, the um, faith that you have in him. It's a place where I can find joy and love no matter what is going on. And again, it's counterintuitive. This is this place where we have to give up our own strengths, give up our own abilities, give up our, our own pride, even give up our whole life. It's that place Jesus talked about. What what does it profit a man if he keeps his life but loses his soul? It's that place where we let go of all our desires, all our wants, all our pictures of how life should be to allow God to take us to his place and to show us. And the miracle in that place is that as we lay down that life, it's where we find the new life in Christ that is freedom, that is safe, that it's not always comfortable and it might not look safe from the outside but there's a space there that, that we will always be safe. It doesn't matter. You, you can read so many biographies of Christian people who have experienced this and have gone through horrific places and times and experiences and yet they've been able to keep that peace in God in that place. This morning, I want to offer to some of you, maybe maybe many of you have experienced this and it's like, yep, I know what you're talking about. But maybe there's a lot of you here this morning or some of you here this morning who go, yeah, I've experienced that once or twice, but I want more of it. And maybe there's some people here this morning who've never experienced that and who go, actually, I'd really like to. I'm going to invite you to stand with me and I'm going to pray and just ask this morning that God will come, the Holy Spirit would come, Jesus when Jesus, when he, he promised us his Holy Spirit who come in power to guide us in all things, to comfort us, to be there, to be our teacher and so I'm going to ask you to, to just be open to that this morning if that's something that you would like to experience either for the first time or more of and that might involve just putting your hands out like you're going to receive a gift. So sometimes God likes us to actually outwardly signify some of the, our heart things that are going on. It doesn't mean you don't get it if you don't put your hands out, but sometimes that can be just a way of saying, yeah, I'm going to submit to you, God. I'm going to lay down my own stuff so that I can receive that peace that you can only bring, that deep love that you can only bring. So why don't you stand with me now? Father God, I thank you so much that you are a God of love, that you are a God who um, desires great things, but that you are a God who is faithful, who is trustworthy and who is true. And right now, for each of us here, um, particularly for those who have not experienced that or have struggled with that, Holy Spirit, we invite you to come into this space this morning, to come into each of our hearts this morning to come and touch us in those places where we struggle to trust you, where we don't feel safe, where we don't have peace. We invite you to fill us afresh, to fill us with more of you, to fill us up fuller and more completely, to fill us up to overflowing, so that we become those people, Father God, who are your people, who are your kingdom here in this world that we are so full of you and your love and your peace that it overflows to those around us that we can truly be your body that touches and impacts the world around us to bring your kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven and we pray all of this in the mighty name of Jesus